What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Alex Garrett Nightly on Can You Dig Sports? This is your nightly roundup of sports, stories of adaptability, and stories that should be trending but quite frankly aren't. Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Welcome inside to Alex Garrett Nightly. Firstly, you hate to be Isaiah Stewart today. What is it with the Palace of Auburn Hills becoming like a, a hot spot for brawls? Remember, I was just thinking Meta World Peace, formerly known as Run Our Test, in the stands against Indiana. I, I mean, you can't make all this stuff up. But last night there was an elbow that uh, LeBron James threw, and Isaiah Stewart from the Pistons took big offense, great offense, and he just kept going after the Lakers last night. I mean, he was thrown out one and more, ended up getting a bloody eye and face bloodied up. Uh, do not want to be those two today. But it is amazing to me that, you know, Isaiah Stewart is the guy that goes crazy, is seen as going crazy, yet LeBron's the one that threw the elbow to begin with, and everybody wipes out of the rug. So... I'm kind of glad Isaiah Stewart didn't. I'm glad he fought for himself on the court because, look, anytime LeBron James flops or does something that it gets away with, it bothers the heck out of me. And you know what? It should you as well. But there was a lot of other stuff yesterday for, and over the weekend. First of all, the Islanders opening up their new arena in Belmont Park, New York. Congratulations. And they lost in their home opener, their brand-new home opener, against the Flames, I believe. Uh, and then they played the Leafs last night. And the result of that was, if I can bear, if you can bear with me, yeah, the, they lost the home opener 5-2 to two to the Flames. And then last night, they lost 3 nothing. So, the 0-2 start at UBS Arena, brand new arena. Uh, it is what it is. But my gripe of the night here on Alex Garrett Nightly, and I won't have many gripes, but gripe of the night tonight is that I wore my Josh Allen jersey only for them to get slaughtered by the Colts, 41-15. to And I warned you about this Buffalo a few weeks ago. The Patriots were on your tail, and now Mac Jones, I saw this on Kenny Dig Sports' page, Mac Jones leading the Patriots to first place in the AFC East, something that is very, very surprising, considering that Mac is a young, young buck, but... He's in the Belichick system, and the Belichick system seems to be uh, paying off for him as they're in first at 7-4. and four. 
the Bills are six and four, and so thanks Josh Allen for making the first time wearing a Bills jersey. I I never wanted to wear one. Always wanted to wear the Jets, Giants, but never upstate. Because I wanted to firmly believe in the downstaters that aren't in New York, by the way. But I put on Allen, and he put on a dud. And now the Bills are fighting with the Patriots for first place and even losing them by a game in uh, in the AFC East. So we'll see how that shapes up. But in other stories, I mean, the, the Chiefs, are are they back? 19-6 win against the Cowboys, are they back after last week's route of the Raiders? I have to believe Mahomes is back a little bit here. Um, they also had the surprising loss of the, yeah, I mean, the Titans, right? Losing 22-13 to to the lowly Texans. What's that about? So it's a surprising player, a surprising things yesterday. Washington football team defeating Cam Newton in his return to Carolina as a home, home uh, you know, quarterback, losing at 27-21. Eagles being the Saints, actually. But the surprise one to me, the surprise one to me is the Cowboys losing that one last night. Of course, the Giants and Bucks are in progress, but by the time this game, this show is over, I don't know what update we'll have. But for now, I want to bring in Brett King. He is the author of The Rise of Techno-Socialism, and he's also the founder of Movin, which is an app which he'll tell you about. And he was actually, believe it or not, a former Obama administrator to discuss the future of banks. So, Brett King, thanks for joining us to talk about CryptoArena.com. Why did the Staples Center get renamed last week by a cryptocurrency firm? Uh, it, it's certainly a signal that crypto is on its way to being mainstream. I'll give you that. Um, but, uh, you know, cri- crypto in itself is essentially a response to the globalization of commerce, particularly around the internet, and the need to um, you know, digitize the world so it works on those digital rails. And so when you look at NFT, it's digitization of assets. When you look at crypto, it's digitization of currency. This is sort of really about the 21st century and what we need to operate, you know, globally as a human species in the digital world and in a in highly automated societies. Now, I, I see your six person number, but do, do you know that the LA Dodgers have gone completely cashless? Like I went there in the in August, and they said the only ATMs you can do is to put money in your card, not take money out, and I was kind of stunned by that. Well, you know, I mean, cash for many people has anonymity attached to it and so forth. But if you think about what happened during the pandemic, you know, essentially we were very dependent on digital because all services started to be delivered digitally. You know, education for our children, uh, telemedicine, you know, for for doctor's appointments, um, you know, obviously uh, retail e-commerce. Uh, and but this is really just a precursor of how the 21st century will need to operate, because you know if, if, as we endeavour to try and reduce the cost of government through automation, we're going to make more and more services automated. And from a com- competition perspective, the fastest and largest growing organisations in the world, these include crypto organisations, are those that can grow at digital scale. So that sort of really predetermines that we need to run the world on real-time digital currencies. 
Well, uh, I want to ask you this because as you keep talking about the online, what about threats of fraud? What about threats of even uh, identity through crypto? Has that been happening? Is there known cases? And how do we prevent that? Well, you know, from the Mt. Gox, uh, you know, they have to, to, there's you know, many exchanges that have been subject to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, attacks, cyber attacks. But this says more really about our identity infrastructure than it does the fact that crypto or digital is less safe than the real world. The reality is, when you know e-commerce first came along, we tried to put our plastic credit cards online, and they're very insecure. Sixteen-digit number with a CVC, you know. Um, security code on the back this can't be secured in the digital realm your mother's maiden name your date of birth your your address your social security number these are all data points that are essentially unsecurable in the digital world so we need digital identity so what this is one area where china actually is significantly ahead of the us um and i know it's controversial but china has digital identity that combines various forms of biometrics. So you have facial recognition, you have fingerprint recognition and voice recognition used throughout their tech based on smartphones and now point of sale uh, technologies and so forth. And they use behavioral heuristics, which we use for any fraud detection here, which is your patterns of behavior. Um, Mm -hmm. And so China right now, when it comes to e-commerce, has... 10,000% 10,000% less fraud than the United States. They get just 0.0006 basis points of fraud across their mobile payment networks. Whereas um, the US gets 11.2 basis points of fraud, 10,000 times higher on uh, the use of credit cards online. But that's not, that's because mm-hmm. credit cards are old tech and it's also because the identity we use is old tech. So well, to be safe, we need digital identity too. Well, but I also know China uses that as social credit, which I feel like is very communistic, very, very like, you know, fascist. And I don't want that coming to America. Well, this is why we need clear ethical guidelines, right? It's not that, you know, because we could use things like facial recognition and use it safely, but we would have to have guarantees via regulation that it's not going to be abused. Already today, um, you know, we see things like Facebook's AI algorithm, um, you know, and TikTok's AI algorithm, um, you know, um, creating biases, creating feedback loops, you know, these are already having an effect in society. So whether it's uh, now or later, at some point, we're going to have to have clear ethical guidelines of how this this data should be used. A hundred percent right. And, and, Hopefully that the government actually stays ethical because we know they have issues with that sometimes. But besides the point, Crypto.com, did they buy into this because they really feel like now's the time? Like what what was the rationale, would you say, behind a, a cryptocurrency firm buying an arena's naming rights? Well, you know, the, um, the arena's naming rights plus the Matt Damon ad campaign around Crypto.com is really trying to signal that this is, you know, crypto now is an every man asset class, you know, um, and it's accessible, um, you know, if, if you want, if you want to really get into it, you can build your own mining machines and, and mine currency. But um, the, if you look at the, the run we've had over the last 13 years with Bitcoin alone, and then you look at Tether and Ethereum and, you know, and other altcoins as well. It's clear that um, 
you know, the trend is obviously that these asset classes are growing. They represent $3 trillion of total wealth now. Mm. So, you know, one way to hedge against a declining U.S. dollar is access to crypto. Um, but for that, people really need to be aware that it's it's safer. And so one of the things you do to make people perceive things as, as safer is try to make it appear, uh, you know, on your sports arenas and on your TV shows and things like that so that people say, I've got to find out more about this crypto stuff. You know, is... Uh... Mayor-elect Eric Adams now wants to do crypto here in New York with Bitcoin. And I'm like, I don't want Bitcoin to be the currency here, but is that what he's going for? Can you explain that to me if you've been reading up on it? Yeah, no, I don't think he's proposing that it replaces the local currency. But I think like, um, you know, we've seen in Ecuador and other places um, that people could accept Bitcoin for payment, um, making it a legal tender option, not forcing people to accept Bitcoin, but saying that the uh, you know, New York City recognizes that Bitcoin is a legit currency. That is only going to make Bitcoin more valuable. Unfortunately, it probably doesn't mean people are going to spend using Bitcoin because most people want to use Bitcoin to accumulate wealth. And, and so they sit on it. They, uh, um, you know, the, the expression obviously is called hodling in the, in the crypto community. Hold on for dear life. Um, the longer you hold, the more money you make. You know, the, the old legends around the Bitcoin pizza that was bought back in, I don't know, 2011 or whatever is now worth $600 million theoretically is sort of evidence of that continuous growth or appreciation of, of crypto as an asset class. Um, got to ask you this. You just mentioned the declining dollar and is, is I know we all know printing more cash is probably going to decline the dollar even more. Can we, can we say that's true? Absolutely. Well, we know it's true. It, it, and it also is a factor in inflation right now um, because the U.S. dollar is not getting um, the value it used to offshore when we're trying to buy goods to ship to the U.S. So is crypto the answer? I mean, I, I'd like to see a strong dollar. So what's the answer? Well, the U.S. stopped printing money <laughs> and look at um, you know, creating economic growth through other means. So the biggest problem we have in the U.S. right now and we're going through a period of adjustment right now with the Great Resignation, is that the U.S. economy doesn't provide a living wage to all of its citizens. And, you know, we debate minimum wage and all of that. But in most of these other, you know, countries where you see stable economic growth, um, you know, particularly China, there is a, an effort to create a living wage for everybody. Because, um, you know, when... You know, the economies like the U.S. are built on consumption. And if people can't afford to eat, they can't afford to put a roof over their heads, they're definitely not going to be spending money on new things um, and buying. And so that's sort of core. But the other risk is China. Um, China's obviously getting stronger as an economy. It'll surpass the U.S. as the, the world's largest economy by the end of this decade. And they're also working on their equivalent of the cryptocurrency, which is the central bank digital currency. Um, and uh, the Olympics next year will be the first uh, time that makes a formal appearance where people who want to buy and, you know, goods and services at the Olympics will be using a mobile wallet linked to their crypto, their central bank digital currency. Well, and that, that it, again, isn't that a way to surveil the citizens? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously you can disagree with the politics 
the politics mm-hmm. um, and policies of, of China without um, necessarily, you know, separately or distinctly oh, I see from what their economic performance, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, it, when you talk about making China stronger, then I say, yes, let's get crypto going if they're going to make us stronger over over China because anything to gain an advantage over them is what's needed right now. That's pretty That's pretty clear is that the U.S. really needs to modernize the economy and part of that must be either a central bank digital currency or a basket of cryptocurrencies that can compete with China. I think that's fairly clear. Well, we saw the Islanders you know, issue an NFT to their uh, season ticket holders. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I'm just thinking in one week all these crypto stories are coming out but if they didn't buy that arena, would that be the case? Uh, look, I think it's just a matter of time. You know, uh, again, um, people are looking for alternative asset classes that are digitally geared. NFTs are one of those, and NFTs are sort of also an issue to grapple with IP and patents and, and you know, um, intellectual property um, mm. on, online in the digital world. So the world is digitizing. The 21st century is going to be about smart economies, and smart economies need digital infrastructure and identity, internet access, data centers, artificial intelligence, and crypto are all sort of part of the guiding rails of a smart economy in the 21st century. I'm talking with Brett King. He is uh, a now founder and executive chairman of Neobank Movin, and he's uh, got a website, brettking.com, which you should je- definitely check out. And I'm so glad we're spending this time together. Uh, could places like Apple with Apple Pay and all these online payment playing things, like, you know, you go up to the register and boom, you can pay right there. Could they learn from the crypto companies now in the way to advance just beyond Apple Pay, if you will? Absolutely. In fact, the next tech that is sort of going to change the way we pay, we should start seeing emerge next year. And there's two companies in the lead for this right now, um, both Apple and Meta or Facebook. And so expect the next computing device for personal use to be these head-mounted displays. So glasses that have a head-up display in them that can display data in your field of view. They're you know, wearable computers, essentially. Those wearable computers will push us to very different types of payment mechanisms. So you walk in a store and your glasses will talk to the point of sale and negotiate you know, uh, if you've ordered something, it'll be able to identify you because obviously, you know, uh, it'll be device-based and you're, you're wearing that. So um, stuff like this is really going to revolutionize the way we think about the checkout. We've already got Amazon Go. They've eliminated physical cashier points from um, their stores. So we know the technology, even though it's in its infancy, can work. Um, and, and, you know, that's essentially how I think we're going to pay and um conduct ourselves in stores in the future. I feel like crypto is very niche still in the sense of that to get into this, you have to very have a very a certain mind, a certain interest. So what drew you to crypto? What drew you to write about this and really study it? Well, I was fascinated by the Bitcoin white paper when it came out in 2008. But um, when I moved to the U.S. in 2010, um, and I just worked on I just released my first book, which at the time was called Bank 2.0, I'm talking about how digitization was affecting the banking sector. And, um, you know, I ended up going to New York and, and going to some of these Bitcoin meetups and meeting people like Charlie Schramm and Roger Ver and Rob Pierce, you know, who are sort of all now household names in the crypto community. Um, but 
These guys really believed that this was going to change the world. It was going to make central banks obsolete. It was going to change uh, the way we thought about economics. And while all of those things haven't happened, it has certainly created an alternative finance system um, that is decentralized and doesn't have the elements of control that central banking does. And so that offers people some freedom. But it it's still a little immature um, and still needs to go through some maturation. But when we come out the other end of this, I think crypto is just going to be another part of that digital world. All right, let's talk about um, the central bank because we just saw Jerome Powell be tapped for another term. But is it possible, because, you know, I'm, I'm also tired of the Fed. Is it possible that the whole abolish the Fed movement has legs, has a real cause behind it? It's, it's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, if you look at the regulatory capabilities that the United States needs, we do need some sort of regulation, um, particularly while we have fiat currencies. But in the future, that regulation is going to be highly automated. We can expect that you know, in 50 years' time, all of the regulation around financial crime and um, your payments is going to be essentially run by artificial intelligence. So what happens in the meantime is that you know, our commercial organizations, are they going to come in and take the place of some of the operational aspects of the Fed? If so, does that sort of weaken the Fed? Does China's uh, central bank digital currency, will that topple the petrodollar in terms mm. of uh, you know, its, its dominance globally when it comes to commodities trade? There's a whole lot of things that um, could weaken the Fed and could weaken uh, the US dollar more broadly. Right now, um, you know, much of U.S. policy, uh, monetary policy, is guided by the banks um, mm. and the lobbying groups attached to banks. And that's where I think the system will, will have to change and where um, banks will increasingly get weaker in terms of their input into monetary policy. I want to, because this is a sports thing, Kenny Dig Sports Radio, I want to stick on that. Do you know, I mentioned the Dodgers, but do you know of any sports even – in you know England or overseas that are taking Bitcoin or crypto as their currency in stadiums right now. Yeah, there are um, some of the uh, Premier League teams take uh, Bitcoin. Um, some of the Premier Leagues have come up with their own cryptocurrencies tied to uh, for member activity, for example, with tokens. Um, tied them to the members. Um, and as I mentioned, um, for the Beijing Olympics. We're going to see um, a central bank digital currency as one of the primary mechanisms. But the real issue here is sort of moving to mobile wallets. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've seen globally offshore, the U.S. again is a little behind on this, but globally today, more people use mobile wallets for day-to-day transactions than they do a plastic card or cash. Um, and so that may surprise many of your listeners because we haven't seen that shift here in the United States. But, for example, in Africa, where you've got a billion people unbanked, you know, that haven't got a bank account, it's much more likely that those billion people will come into the banking system with a mobile wallet over the next 10 years or so than they will a plastic card that they got from a bank branch. And so as part of it's really about the infrastructure. Once you have mobile wallets for teams, um, you know, or, or teams have their um, you know, membership integrated into mobile wallets, you can do some really cool things. You can offer um, you know, real-time benefits uh, when 
you know, if you're a member purchasing at a store, whether online or in the physical space where your team's, uh, you know, um, goods are, are for sale, um, you know, it gives you just a lot more flexibility and gives people a lot more options. All right. I see that you're, uh, you're the host of Breaking the Banks podcast, the Breaking Banks podcast, and that term was used so much after 2008. We need to break down the banks. Even I think Bernie Sanders had this idea to like break down the banks and, and sort of just move away from them. Uh, at the time, I thought it was kind of wild, but also we all kind of agreed that the bailouts weren't really beneficial to even the American taxpayer, were they? Well, you know, I, I mean, we chose the name, ironically. You'll get a laugh out of this, I think. But, um, you know, the time we started the Breaking Banks podcast in 2013, Breaking Bad was super popular. <laughs> so <laughs> that had something to do with it, I think. Um, but, yeah, I, you can, Bernie talked about it. You know, you've got the Young Turks that have had a sort of Breaking Banks uh, campaign and, and so forth as well. Um, so I think... People recognize, like they do with fossil fuel companies, that banks have not been good corporate citizens, you know. Um, and I think that's probably the pressure that society is going to apply to these sorts of organizations um, and say, look, it's fine while you're making all this money hand over fist, but the U.S. is facing the greatest inequality we've seen since the founding of the nation. Right. Mm -hmm. And that gap between the rich and the poor, you know, increased during the pandemic. You know, the the U.S.'s billionaires um, own more than the bottom 90 percent of the U.S. population. That's an unsustainable situation. And the banks and, you know, these corporations that have had power over public policy in the U.S., um, you know, they're largely to blame for um, this inequality we face. These are some of the design flaws in sort of the current version of capitalism, and we need some reform. So um, U.S. society is definitely more inclusive and more accessible. Well, I thought the 1%, you know, the 1%, uh, whatever you want to call it, breaking the 1%, whatever you want to call that, uh, movement at first parading out in, you know, camping out in Zuccotti Park, I thought there could be more. Well, if you want to do capitalism, then work toward it. But now I saw firsthand as the pandemic was going on, uh, a Starbucks was able to survive it, but the mom and pop shop down the block was not. And I thought, you know, I thought there was a whole move away from the 1%, give mom and pops a chance. But the pandemic showed that's not the case, that the mom and pops were forced to do more than the Starbucks or the Amazons, I feel. Well, part of that was the whole digitization thing, right, is that um, Starbucks was able to adapt to digital ordering and, um, you know, delivery and so forth. But a lot of the mom and pop stores that depended on people walking into their stores, you know, were, were obviously threatened. But there's a new sort of mom and pop store concept emerging on top of platforms like Uber or, you know, um, Amazon and others where you can sort of build your businesses on these platforms now with a lot of business services integrated. I think we're just going to see more and more of that emerge with sort of mom-and-pop stores that are digitally focused uh, coming up, and that's certainly what we've seen in China. Alibaba just had their equivalent of Cyber Monday, and they did $85 billion of sales in one day. But a lot of that, um, about 40% of it, was to mom-and-pop operators that operate on top of the Alibaba ecosystem. How do you like the romanticization of Black Friday? Is it 
too much of a thing now? I mean, is it, is it, is it not giving the mom and pops a chance? And does crypto change Black Friday moving forward? I don't know if crypto changes it, um, but I think wallets could change it. Um, you know, emerging mobile wallets. I, you know, the the whole crypto thing. Uh, I mean, in the whole uh, Cyber Monday, Black Friday thing, it's sort of a manufactured sale event. You know, to lower prices and get rid of stock and and uh, get ready for the big Christmas. Um, you know, sales activities and things like that. So, it's one of these things invented by <laughs> retailers to make us spend more money. Um, I, I think one thing that will happen as a result of the pandemic is I think there's going to be more of a focus on tools that help us manage our money more effectively. Oh, I would love um, that. That don't, yeah. I mean, that don't make you invest in them in the sense of like, just give me a budget. I don't want to really right. invest. I just want to know my budget. But I feel like some of the apps say, no, invest with us and we'll help you. It's like, no, I just want a budgeting app. So, so what are you seeing there? Well, I think in five years, when I think you'll be able to ask your phone, um, hey, can I afford to go out for dinner tonight? And I'll know the answer to that question. I, um, I think that um, particularly coming off the back of the pandemic, we're seeing these new mobile um, you know, banks like Vara, Chime, ourselves, Movement, Current, and others, who um, are really more focused on sort of a holistic system of helping you manage your money and do that more effectively. And I think that's going to become sort of the separation between the dumb banks that give you a card but are telling you to spend all the time to get airline miles versus these smarter wallets that are saying, let me help you manage your money. And I think that's going to become an important trend. All right. How does moving distinguish themselves from Stash and from others that even say, hey, save with us, but sometimes it doesn't even work out like that? Well, we were the first mobile bank in the United States. We were founded in August of 2010. Um, and so, you know, we predate a lot of these organizations. But now we're focused on helping community banks and regional banks around the U.S. to, you know, help their customers better with managing their money. So we worked with the likes of TD um, and uh, uh, Citizens Bank of Edmonds, B1 Bank, you know, a bunch of banks here and around the world that we, we sort of helped um, modernize their, their bank account infrastructure well i do feel like in the in the long run banks are giving sound advice but would you agree with that or no well you know most of the advice you get from banks is product advice right this is the advice you have on which product is best to get from the bank they don't give you a lot of just passive help in terms of like how to change your behavior to save more money so one uh, area that's extremely powerful is just giving people notifications on how much they're, they're spending in different areas. So, you know, how much they spend on dining out, how much they spend, you know, with their sports teams, how much they spend on, you know, entertainment generally. And um, most people are not aware of how much they spend each week on you know, buying meals out or getting, you know, taxis and stuff like that. So when they do see that, um, it, it, it allows them to sort of modify their behavior so we've seen we've seen situations where customers have reduced their spending by like five to eight percent just through notifications on how much they're spending each month in different categories all right well i'm going to have to sign up for moving and see how that goes because i'm curious now but and i will actually check it out but um you talking about the banks why does it feel like there's an irs banks partnership when the irs says yeah we're monitoring your uh or records of $600 or more. Well, again, I think part of this is 
the fact that um, banks um, are seen as sort of a aspect of regulatory enforcement um, when it comes to financial crime and tax evasion, and I think that's wrong. Um, but I think the other element of this is, um, you know, taxation probably has to go through some significant changes. We're likely mm-hmm. to see a global corporate tax rate develop over the next few years so that corporations can't hide in certain jurisdictions and reduce their tax. Um, but I think the other thing we'll see is eventually we'll just get real-time taxation and tax will be built into consumption more than it will be into your salary. Um, mm. For the same reason that we're talking about this $600 um, you know, IRS uh, limit that they've created uh, arbitrarily for being able to track down transactions. As more and more transactions happen digitally and more people use crypto and things like that, the IRS is going to have to think about taxation differently too. Well, Henry David Thoreau was in jail for not paying taxes, so... Uh, I don't know. I just that the tax stuff is so it's always frustrating. And then you see the global minimum tax that was established. Truthfully, I've not had an, an economist on to talk about that, so maybe you can give us a quick thought because I think a global minimum tax it, it could prevent offshore, which I know Americans hate. We hate corporate inversion, but at the end of the day, is is it really going to work? Um, well, you know. If you look at the corporate tax rate in the U.S., um, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, when the U.S. was the strongest economy the world had ever seen, um, accounting for 40% of all global output, um, the corporate tax rate was 50%. And what that did is it encouraged corporations to spend as much of their you know, money that they had as possible rather than um, having huge profits. Um, and so it was all geared towards growth and, uh, and output rather than um, profitability. Um, because profitability tends to benefit just a very small percentage of the population, those people that have uh, invested in stocks. Um, and that's less than a quarter of the population in the U.S. So if you want more inclusive uh, economies, you need to have higher corporate tax rates. That's just what history teaches us. And, I mean, everybody talks about the flat tax, and I kind of agree. I don't want corporations that are not big to be charged the same amount as the big corporation. Well, you know, I I think um, there needs to be incentives in various manners for growth, um, and part of that, I think for the 21st century is going to be corporations that really uh, prioritize the public good, um, you know, for example, hire humans over the use of artificial intelligence or uh, companies uh, that are directly involved in um, you know, climate mitigation, as an example. And I think that those companies deserve definitely to pay, pay uh, lower tax rates. But the incentives have to be different. Right? Now the mm. incentives are to try and use the tax code to get as many breaks as you can. That doesn't generally benefit the American population. It just benefits corporations and shareholders. So we need some other measures other than just pure profitability. Well, how about the fact that... Like whether companies are carbon neutral, whether they use sustainable goods in the production of their profits. I think more of that sort of stuff is, is going to become commonplace. Do you see corporations adapting to Bitcoin and crypto more so... Uh, faster than than before. Uh, yeah, it's definitely picking up in terms of speed. Yeah, the uh, 
the arena play, um, you know, and other things like that are, are evidence of that. NFTs are, are gaining, uh, you know, some uh, interest around the place as well. Um, but certainly, you know, when you have players like Square and um, you know, Twitter and others, uh, you know, and PayPal um, building crypto into their ecosystem, you know, it's certainly on its way to becoming more mainstream. And I just uh, was remiss saying that you were an advisor to President Obama. Uh, on the future of banking, and I have to bring you back on to see if back then the future is where you'd like it to be now. But that's another conversation for another day because I just want to introduce you to the Alex Garrett podcast crowd, the you know Kennedy Sports crowd. So thanks for doing this today, Brett King, BrettKing.com. I just got one more question because crypto, Bitcoin, can they? Everyone seems to be wondering what the answer is to this economic crisis. Could they be a, a solution? to solving the economic crisis post-pandemic here? Uh, absolutely. In fact, um, my book came out on Sunday. It's called The Rise of Techno-Socialism, How AI, Climate Change, and Inequality Will Usher in a New World. And that book um, uh, you know, goes into great detail in terms of um, reducing the cost of government, reducing the size of government through automation, and the role that crypto and uh, digital assets will play in um, 21st century economies. The Rise of Techno-Socialism. Check it out. Brett King, Amazon bestseller, joining this podcast. Thanks so much, Brett, and we'll definitely have you back. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks to Newman Communications for making this happen today. Great conversation with Brett. And by the way, follow me, AlexGNYC1, on Instagram. And follow Can You Dig Sports. Can You Dig Sports is on Instagram as well. Got to follow him there. And up next, Can You Dig Live? Thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you tomorrow night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy. Hey, Mikey. If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl. But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian.